Do you struggle with what it means to be successful in your retirement? Trust us, you're not alone. Welcome to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Here, you'll go in-depth with Guidance Point Advisors Investment Consultants to hear stories about how retirees in Maine are navigating a successful retirement. Get insight into the inevitable challenges of aging and define what a successful retirement looks like. Welcome, everyone, to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. My name is Ben Smith. Allow me to introduce my co-host, the next home in Remax to my Caldwell banker, Curtis right. Wister and Austin Miner. How are you guys doing today? Doing well, Ben. Good. Doing well. Excellent. Well, um, speaking of real estate, that's, uh, that's something that's on the top of mind for a lot of people right now is, like, you know, I think going through the pandemic and you had people relocate to different locales because of remote work. You had our clients, uh, their values have gone up of their homes, right? And now they have more equity than they've ever had. So that's part right. of our financial planning that we've been talking about. But also now we got high interest rates. So if we're buying and selling property, well, what does that mean? So the lots of questions coming out from, from the folks that we work with on a daily basis. And, you know, that's something that we just kind of have been thinking, uh, I think as our team. Yeah. Geez. Well, maybe we got to get a little bit more insight here for, for what's going on. So Austin, like what's, um, what do you, what are you kind of uh, seeing from your side here on the real estate end? Well, obviously, Maine's very diverse when it comes to real estate and uh, just as a state in general. So we have, you know, amazing forests, great small towns, oceanfront properties. Um, and so that presents a lot of unique real estate situations, whether it's mm-hmm. finding a rental home or you're looking for just buying land, maybe mm-hmm. interested in logging. Um, there's a lot of things that are maybe unique when you're looking at Maine versus the uh, national real estate situation. Sure. So. We thought it might be helpful to kind of zoom in a little on Maine today, talk about what we're looking at as Mainers, and then seeing how those issues are reflected on a national scale and if kind of compare and contrast there. Yeah, that that's fantastic. And, you know, like we like to do on kind of all of our shows, um, hopefully our guests know this by now, we like to bring in experts, right? Um, we're all good at, at kind of what we do, but I will put my hand up. I am not an expert in real estate. Nope. Um, so on today's episode, uh, we have a very special guest with us uh, who brings a wealth of knowledge and expertise to the table. Um, our guest currently serves as the chief executive officer and chief investment officer at Union Square Capital Partners, which is a firm specializing in real estate fund management. Um, so before working at USQ, uh, he was head of manager research at Nationwide Investment Management Group. Um, our guest holds a bachelor's degree in business from the Pennsylvania State University uh, and earned his doctorate from Drexel University's LeBeau School of Business. Um, he is also holds the chief uh, chartered financial analyst designation and a certificate in commercial real estate from NYU's Shack Institute of Real Estate. So with that, I think we've just laid out how uh, certainly educated and how much of an expert he is. So please join me in welcoming Tom Miller to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Tom, thank you so much for coming on our show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, Tom, um, you know, I, we kind of are, are setting up our show here and we have, we have lots of questions we want to ask you and kind of what's happening. But, you know, from our, from our audience perspective, uh, we always want to just get to know you a little bit and kind of what's shaped your worldview. So love to hear a little bit about your career history and how long you've been invest, uh, in real estate investing. 
Sure. So I've, I've loved real estate for the last 25 years. Uh, I put myself through college working for a title insurance company. So closing loans back in the late 90s and early 2000s, and then uh, got into, into investment management in 2006. And then uh, kind of, you know, you, you went through my bio there a little bit, uh, just kind of worked my way through and have been investing in real estate now uh, at Union Square for the last seven years. Awesome. So obviously kind of title insurance, kind of that first piece kind of landing into it was, was that something where you're like, Hey, getting into college and it's like real estate was something you're just interested in or look for jobs kind of found like here's one and needed some income. Yeah, a little bit of both, but uh, yeah. I've always loved real estate. And, and what I loved about that experience, I was actually able to, uh, at the time, even being in college at the time, uh, I was able to invest in a, in a couple investment properties and I still hold those today. Wow. Nice. Uh, so it's been, you know, uh, real estate has been central to, to everything I've done. Um, even as I, you know, got older and, and got married and we bought our first home, we kept our first home and we rent that out now as well. So we've just been able to build a nice uh, real estate portfolio. And now I have the pleasure of, of investing, you know, from an institutional basis in commercial real estate as well. So again, just center to uh, center to everything in my life uh, is real estate. So I, I love talking about it and, and happy to uh, provide whatever insight I can here. Love that. It's awesome. Well, you're definitely the right person for uh, the podcast today. So that's <laughs> good to hear. Um, so tell us a little bit about Union Square. What does the company do? What differentiates you from other competitors in the field? Sure. So we run two closed end interval funds. And what that means is we look and feel a lot like a mutual fund, but we can, we redeem quarterly. So a little bit limited, a little bit more limited liquidity. But what that does is it allows us to invest in private real estate. And so very different than publicly traded REITs, less volatility. And what it does is it gives us access to some of the best real estate in the country. And so we invest not exclusively in, in one of our strategies exclusively, but in the other strategy, about 50% in what they call the NFI Odyssey Index. And what that is, is it's an index that's comprised of 25 private funds. That's the highest quality commercial real estate in the country. And uh, and so I just want to make sure that everybody understands what I mean when I say commercial real estate. Yeah. Contrary to what the Wall Street Journal will tell you, that's so much more than just office, right? Mm -hmm. Commercial real estate includes retail, industrial, multifamily, and office. And as a matter of fact, in today's environment, uh, in, in the United States, office makes up just shy of 20% of the overall commercial real estate market. Mm. That's great. And uh, thank you for that insight there. Um, I want to rewind a, a touch, uh, Tom, and talking about Union Square Capital Partners. What's kind of the history and really why were the, why was the company initially founded? Sure. So we're a wholly owned subsidiary of a firm called Chatham Financial. And Chatham's been in real estate since 1991. And really, Chatham came into existence to bring trust and transparency to the derivatives markets. And okay. uh, what many people don't realize is many real estate owners and operators use derivatives to, to hedge interest rate risk. Mm -hmm. And so Chatham was, was founded in 91 to bring trust and transparency to derivatives markets. And then in 2017, they launched us because they felt uh, there was no good way at a very reasonable cost to get into private real estate. And so here we sit today, two closed-end interval funds, two of the lowest-cost closed-end interval funds on the market, and really kind of down the middle in what we do. We're trying to just make what was historically inaccessible more accessible to a broader base of investors, generally speaking, through registered investment advisors like yourselves. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, Tom, I know that so it's really awesome from a background perspective, and I know we want to get to a, a, the, the big premise of today's show is really what's the future of real estate 
you know, locally, but also nationally for us. So love to start with some basics. So in terms of like from from a trend perspective, what are you seeing for trends that are happening right now nationally in real estate this year? Sure. So a big push, industrial real estate. So think Amazon and logistics buildings. Everybody still loves logistics real estate right now. So industrial. Multifamily has really been a good spot for the last five to seven years as well. And looks like it will be in in the future as well, and as well as single family residential. Uh, the headwinds that we're all reading about really are around office and and downtown urban areas. And will workers return to the office? I think that's still a little bit unknown. Uh, we're only back to about fifty percent occupancy within office, so uh, that's that's the challenging part. And I, I think that's that's really the national picture. So office, there's question marks around office, but multifamily and industrial, really strong operating fundamentals. And then within retail, you know, retail for the last decade, we've been saying, oh, you know, there's going to be problems in retail, malls are dead. And that's really not the case. What what happened with retail is class A retail, experience-based retail is actually coming back very strong right now. And so, you know, I, I think that's going to be the same thing that happens in office as well. Not all office will survive, but good, highly amenitized class A office will be just fine. And we're actually seeing tenants flock to those types of buildings. Okay, no, that's interesting. So, yeah, my next question is actually around the effects of sort of 2020 and people that started working remotely and then they were able to move away from where their offices were located. So as Maine is a more remote state, we saw a huge influx of people during that time. So you said, obviously, people are kind of moving back into the offices more now. But what does that look like as far as the residual effect on where they bought their new homes, maybe? So if I've lived in Massachusetts, worked in Boston, and then moved to Maine, am I now having to move back? Or are we seeing any changes there? Maine's so beautiful, nobody wants to move back. So (laughs) Right. That's exactly right. That's that's the problem. It truly is the problem. But uh, I think it's, I I don't think so. I think the the fact of the matter remains, and this is in Maine and, and nationally, we're undersupplied in homes, right? So I don't think even as workers do have to get back to the urban areas, uh, having a second home or keeping their real estate is still highly valued. So I don't think yeah. you're going to see a big decrease in home prices. It's a supply and demand function. It's it's kind of going back to Econ 101, right? Sure. Uh, we have too much demand for housing and too little supply. And so because you have that even in the environment of higher interest rates right now, those dynamics, those supply and demand fundamentals will, will win the day. And so we're seeing that right now. Tom, can I can I ask like a, you know, this is maybe just a little bit of a rabbit hole, but I, I think there might be a clarification that would be helpful is so when you say there's limited supply of, of homes, well, I, I think where what could be kind of challenging to think through is like, well, how is there limited supply of home? It's not like you have all these people homeless out here that don't have a home, right? So right. they're they're living somewhere currently to get into a home. So can you just explain that dynamic when you say there's an undersupply of homes available for people? Sure. Household formation is outpaced new homes. So in, in effect, people are, are growing up, getting married, having kids, uh, and they would want to buy a home, but they can't right now because there's no supply. And now with interest rates going up, it's much more uh, it's much harder to afford. So where are those people living? They're generally living in multifamily or they're mm-hmm. renting a single family home. So when I talk about undersupply, I mean undersupply of single family homes available for purchase uh, yep. for gotcha. you know for the typical starter family. And so multifamily has filled that void. And we think multifamily will continue to fill that void 
for the foreseeable future. So think in the next five to seven years, multifamily is going to play a, a big role in this country. And even if the home builders wanted to build new homes today, you don't have the labor force to do it. So even if they went full force today, you still have years of building ahead of you before you bring that uh, back into equilibrium. So before supply and demand meet each other. Hmm. This is this is just a kind of a question. I didn't know if there's there's a data point out there in there, but is there just based on construction rates and kind of is there kind of this um projection that the real estate industry has out there about when when that uh under supply gets corrected because obviously there's a market opportunity yeah. right as if you are sure. if if prices are going up or there's demand for it and how, how do you know when do you think that that might ease i guess is the question yeah you know it's it's an interesting question and the question really comes down to how undersupplied are we and that number is really hard to pin down uh some would say 6 million some would say up to 12 million so there's definitely limited supply in terms of time frame to correct that it depends i mean and the home builders today are building but they're building on a limited basis and they're building and what they're doing in the face of of higher interest rates uh they're adding on and they're buying down they're buying down the rates for people to get into those homes that's not really an environment where they want to build an extra 100 or 150 homes on a site right they're they're going to build what they know they can sell and that's that's all they're filling right now they're they're not it's not like pre 2008 when home builders were turning everything on and yeah. and everything was mm-hmm. was booming it's much more calculated in this environment and you know anecdotes general rule of thumb when the 30 year fixed rate mortgage is above 6% that's when home builders start to get weary of putting a ton of new supply out there because foot traffic goes down True. and so now that you have a, a 30 year fixed rate mortgage <laughs> it touched 8% 2 weeks ago it's it's since come back down to 7 and a half 7.30 but still that's that's pretty high relative to where things have been historically over the last call it 10 to 15 years yeah absolutely and I'm going to rewind us a minute because you said something a couple questions ago that I really want to dive into. Um, so I am going to rotate us out of the home uh, conversation for just a second. And I want to get sure. um, back talking about office buildings, right? A couple minutes ago, we were talking, Austin kind of teed that up. Um, you made a statement that, you know, long term, you don't think they're really going anywhere. Right. Again, maybe not all office sur- survives, right? Yep. Can you just kind of elaborate on that kind of your outlook for office buildings and then kind of maybe if it's not being used for office buildings, like what are some of these other uses for this type of commercial real estate? Yeah, that's it's, it's going to be more mixed use moving forward. We've seen that trend happening prior to. So what does that look like? An office building is retail on the bottom couple floors, maybe some multifamily and then office on top. And so that's going to happen. The problem is, as everybody says, and, and I think even the administration came out and said, hey, we have all of these office buildings out there. Why don't we just turn them into multifamily? Well, it doesn't exactly work like that. Yeah. So the floor plates for commercial real estate or, or for office buildings, I should say, uh, are is, is very different than multifamily. And think about things, just simple things like bathrooms, right? And uh, and windows, you know, some, some pretty yeah. basic <laughs> needs that you need in a multifamily place. Often the office building doesn't really lend itself without quite a bit of construction uh, and a lot of money to be put into that. So you're not going to be able to just convert all old office buildings into multifamily, but I think mixed use will win the day and you're going to continue to see that. And uh, and again, highly amenitized class A office is seeing leasing activity pick up basically throughout the country. There's a couple pockets, a couple cities that are still pretty slow to recover, hmm. but generally speaking, highly amenitized class A office is, is doing okay. 
Hmm. Well, Tom, I, I know um, one, we're just trying to canvas a lot of the different types <laughs> of real estate out there and, and uh, kind of pieces of it. And something we have a lot of in Maine is trees, right? So timber is, is kind of a, is, is a theme as well, right? In terms of real estate that people might not think about in terms of, Hey, land and kind of use. And I know in our state, we just, um, you know, having, having this kind of theme about owning forest land and just having either just maybe, maybe there's a, there's a use of harvesting data eventually where they, they go and that's, that's a, there's an investment that they can make in terms of going and harvesting that property and using the timber replanted or, or maybe they're just kind of thematically doing that over time, right? Here's the trees that are ready to be harvested. And there's a way to kind of get a level of income from the land, not just a buy and sell, right? right. So I know there's, uh, for, and Austin, I had a client meeting the other day and the, the client was like, I, the, the the goal I have, he's buying up all this timber land and property. And he's like, you know, preservation's my thing, right? Is I want to preserve this. I don't want you know, vehicles coming in and out of it. I want the rivers pristine and I want the trees to be 200 year trees that keep going. So I guess the question is for that specific client where he's gobbling up all this land he wants to preserve. How does that kind of the value of these sorts of property and timber, how does that play into how you value property in terms of the landscape here is my question. Sure. And that's, that's, uh, that's hard because commercial real estate, when you think about it, it's really valued as net operating income, right? So everything's run off of a discounted cash flow statement or, you know, what they call a cap rate, which is net operating income over purchase price. So what you're asking is if you don't have income, how do you value it? And, and generally speaking, I would say the way you think about it is land is a real asset. And so as inflation goes up, the cost of land will go up as well. So land is just a great inflationary hedge. So just owning land for for those reasons alone from an investment perspective is a great inflationary hedge. And then when you do start to, there are actually, uh, there is an index that does follow timber specifically. So I, I looked it up in preparation for this podcast. And it, it, when you start to get land that does yield income, generally speaking, it's annualized over the long term, about a seven to eight percent annualized return to own timber and to harvest it. So that's, you know, a good return when you think about it over all the all the uh, economic cycles. And so I will never be negative on owning land. I think I think it's, you know, real estate in general is always going to be a good investment over time. Now, if your time horizon is one year, it's probably not the, the investment for you unless you're going to try to flip something. But generally speaking, if you're a long term investor, you really can't go bad with real estate. And and that's just been it, it, it's proven itself time and time again throughout history. And I love that, you know, many people call real estate an alternative. Yeah. But but let's be clear, real estate ownership existed before stocks and before bonds as well. So it's, it's an alternative to stocks and bonds in one capacity, but it's been the sing single biggest wealth creator in history. Owning real estate has been the single, the, well, not the, the, the only way, but one of the only ways or, or has generated more millionaires than any other investment scheme out there. So mm. real estate, I'm, I'm definitely long on real estate and, and definitely long on acquiring land if that's, you know, if, if that's something that, that your clients can do. Sure. Interesting. No, that makes a lot of sense. I wanted to get back to uh, some rental real estate questions. So you had mentioned earlier that you see multifamily rentals having a strong 
demand for the next, say, five to 10 years, somewhere in that window. How does that translate to like vacation rental properties, things like Airbnbs? Because Maine's a very heavy seasonal tourism state. So that's something that a lot of people are kind of questioning. Should I buy a house to invest in and then I stay there sometimes too? What does that demand look like in the future? Uh, It's still very strong. I think it got a little bit ahead of itself. Everybody wanted an Airbnb, so they were buying them all over the country. uh, And that's since weakened a bit. But over the long term, again, I think if you have realistic expectations, you're exactly right. A a place like Maine should always have demand for people to come in Airbnb. Now, are you going to be able to rent it for $5,000 a week if you, you know, that is, that's yet to be seen. But, you know, I think, I think as demand will ebb and flow, but generally speaking, you're always going to be able to rent, you know, really well-maintained properties in in areas that are attractive. And so uh, I I still think that's a a good, you know, a a good investment, again, as part of an investor's overall portfolio. They shouldn't, they shouldn't sell everything else and just go, hey, I'm going to go an Airbnb strategy. But uh, as an overall well-diversified portfolio, I I think it's still a good investment. So so Tom, I want to kind of maybe ask a ask another question here cuz you know you're talking about airbnbs and i know one thing that we're just seeing locally and we we've had kind of conversations actually with one of our uh, former teammates abby she does um, she's bought kind of this she thing like she bought a multifamily on her own and then she they turned that into here's like a office building she's looking to buy and so she's kind of created this using equity of one to buy the next to buy the next and you see that theme happening even more right now because there's a lot of success that's been built over the last few years right yep. and you know I, I we kind of laugh a little bit because the the real estate agents they got uh, their tiktoks and they got the and you just here's a minute of you just take your equity and you just flip that into the next yeah. thing. And then that creates all the income and it's just easy. And it's just, yeah. you just and, the, and it's all good debt, right? What, what, what could go wrong with that? What could go wrong? <laughs> exactly. So, exactly. so I guess what I, what I love from your side, cause I know, as you said, you kind of have done this personally where you've owned some of your own properties and then professionally here, you said, Hey, I can apply my talents and my knowledge of real estate to create more diversification, create a fund for investors. I would just love to hear a little bit about compare and contrast here from this personal investing. People want to own it and touch it and feel it and see it and, you know, be able to kind of use their hands and their talents to get that ROI versus the invisibility. I think of here's a a paper investment that goes up or down that they don't really see um, the improvements on. So can you just talk about kind of compare and contrast, maybe risk return profiles of those two things? Because I I think right now we're all, I think locally, we just see there's just a trend towards just buy up everything locally and we're, we're going to be see what happens. millionaires. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it's different. I think the way to evaluate real estate, we talked a little bit about it. Cap rates are what everybody, and, and I, I don't love talking about cap rates because they're misunderstood and, and oftentimes misquoted in the media, but cap rate in its simplest form is NOI over purchase price. And so on an institutional cap rate today, when you think about you know, what, what should a, a commercial property yield? Well, because office has more risk, the cap rate should be a little bit higher. So think seven to 8%. So 7% to 8% income off of the, the purchase of that property. Whereas, you know, multifamily and industrial, less risk right now. So those cap rates are going to be lower. 
So when you evaluate real estate across the board, you can still apply that same technique over to buying your own rental property and say, okay, I'm going to spend X dollars. So let's just use simple math. I'm going to spend $100,000. I'm going to buy a property. And I know that's very low. <laughs> just use it for simple math. Follow me here. And I'm going to make $8,000 a year in, in income. That's the, what we would say is an eighth cap, right? So an 8% cap rate. And so you have to evaluate that and say, okay, well, with an, with an eight cap, if I, if I could take that same money and invest it somewhere else, would I make more than 8%? And that's the, the question that you would have uh, as you're going into the investment. But I would say leverage and, and debt used appropriately and prudently is a very, very powerful tool. And so with what we do, the funds we invest in keep leverage 35% or, or lower. And in today's environment, it's only, they're only levered at about 25%. Hmm. But uh, on the on the residential side, if you can lever and take that money and apply it to another home, again, used prudently, that will really magnify returns. What you don't want to do is go buy an investment property and then lever it all the way up to the, a loan to value ratio is, is nothing more than the, the amount of the loan relative to the value of the property. Sure. So when you think about when you buy your first home, generally speaking, you need 20% down, right? So that would be an 80% LTV. So as, as long as you, as long as you keep that leverage profile down. So in investment properties, when you're borrowing, most lenders want to see 25% down. So if you can meet that hurdle, put 25% down, rent it out and make sure that your income is, is exceeding the cost of that leverage and the cost of the maintenance of that property, then yes, that's a, that's a good investment. And over time, that will certainly yield benefits. And I, so I'm, I'm a big proponent of using debt. Prudently, what I'm not a big proponent of is using debt irresponsibly sure. and then going up to that 100% LTV and then just saying like this can never go wrong. That's that's where things exactly go wrong. So if, <laughs> if in your mind you're saying this this is a great investment, this could never go bad, you should probably stop. Uh, so you know that that's kind of the same techniques across both. And I know that was a long winded answer. And I, I apologize. no, but I think I think that's perfect, Tom. Because I think um, so. And just to kind of the ROI is right. That's a net ROI, right? Because if I have a you know, as you said, like interest rates are now approaching you know, say eight, eight and a half or whatever, right? It's like, I, I need to have that level of income after those costs, those maintenance costs and the, the debt and the interest payments and all of yep. that, right? This has got to be my net payment to to basically pay for the level of risk that I'm getting out of this, right? Is to, Correct. I think that's a key part. But two is I want to ask uh, the so people are good about the building, right? So they're all excited about the building. And I, I turn one property into two and I turn two to three. Well, I think one thing that um, just we see as we're talking to folks that have this is they have not thought about how do they unwind that chain, right? right. So they build up to, I'm going to get 20 properties and then I'm going to get all this income out of it and I can sit at home and I can just cash checks. I'm just doing the Uncle Scrooge thing of just checks coming in the mail. I just cash it and there it's all good. Where I, I think at some point where, hey, I'm going to be 60, 65, 70, 75, I'm not able to manage this or I might have a property management. I'm not able to maybe get the value. I'm not, I don't want to give it to my kid that maybe doesn't know real estate the way I do or these properties specifically. How do I unwind it to get liquidity? So I want to ask the question of the difficulty of unwinding that empire that you build versus again the the the, the work you do through your fund 
and the hey here's here's how i can try to achieve a different return risk profile but also the unwinding moment of that too right and so our product does not allow for this but mutual funds don't allow for this but there are other real estate firms that offer what they call 1031 exchange programs so where you can sell real estate and as long as you roll it into a comparable property you don't have the tax the capital gain tax implications for that <clears throat> take that a step further there are companies that will help you effectively manage your tax liability by transferring your property into a, a real estate investment trust and then taking shares of that. But generally speaking, you really have to be careful on that because there's a lot of fees and a lot of people in, in the way of that return, if you will. Uh, so you don't want to build up this great empire and then have it eroded by everybody else taking a, a cut of that as you unwind it. So you have to be careful. It's something to pay attention to. Generally speaking, my thought is think about real estate as a long-term investment, and hopefully you are going to leave it to your heirs, right? You should think about it as a generational investment, stepped-up basis, uh, a tax basis when you when you do roll it. And, uh, and so that's kind of the way to, that's kind of the way to think about it. That said, if you do want to unwind it, I think just like anything else, talk with your advisor, talk with the, the local real estate agents about when, when the appropriate time to sell is and what are you going to do with that liquidity? So it's, it's part of the overall financial plan. And again, capital gains, nobody loves to pay taxes, hmm. but at the end of the day, it's, it's a kind of a necessary evil of investing as well. Sure. So. I would just, I would caution as people unwind their real estate, it's okay to pay a little bit of tax, right? It's, it, by the time you're trying to do the tax avoidance strategies, oftentimes you're eroding the, the returns away anyway of sure. just paying the tax. So you have to, you, you really have to think that through. And, uh, and so it's something that, you know, we look at these products all the time and we see layers and layers of fees and we say, well, in, in some cases, the investors would be better off just paying the cap gains tax and, and moving forward. Yeah. And so. Yeah. So, so Tom, I, I want to kind of take that just one step further because <laughs> I, I think to one point it's like, well, I'm going to retire and I want cash out of it eventually. We've, we've actually had a, a client experience where they've been pretty successful with commercial real estate. They've done really, really well. So much so that they've, the value of that commercial real estate is going to create a sizable estate tax, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, here's, here's a very large estate tax uh, number that's going to come out of it. If they pass away today, it's going to be tens of millions of dollars that they're going to have to pay the IRS within nine months after passing, right? right. So, okay. So that creates another challenge where it's like, I die with this portfolio. Right. And say, as you said, it's a long-term investment in, I'm just, you know, you, you kind of go to the worst case scenario. It's the financial crisis. And right. now you got to liquidate all this property at the wrong time to create um, enough cash and liquidity to pay the IRS tax bill on your estate tax. So I, I guess how have you kind of seen folks kind of think about that as well to, to make sure that, Hey, I got liquidity that pays it or I'm not, I'm not fire sailing stuff at the yeah. wrong moment. Yeah. So in a portfolio, I wish we could all be that lucky. Ben, to, to <laughs> yes, I know. I know. Uh, I want uh, that you, problem. Yeah. yeah I, want, <laughs> I certainly want that problem as well. Uh, but I think what you're talking about there is a very, very unique, less than, I don't even know, 0.1% of people are going to mm -hmm. have that problem. In that case, I would suggest, especially in the commercial real estate space, that's where you can get a little bit more crafty in terms of transferring that property, taking shares of a 
what they call an upreach transaction. And so you can definitely think that through ahead of time, which solves some of the problems that you're talking about. So you get liquidity. You don't have to sell all that and recognize all that taxable gain, but it gives you flexibility from an estate planning perspective as well. And so that's, uh, again, not the prop for the basis so of my earlier, my <laughs> yes, earlier comments. Yeah. yeah. My earlier comments there were, were much more about, you know, you don't have a huge portfolio. You, you have sure. a, a, you know, maybe a couple million dollars worth of real estate. And, and that's kind of the, the way you do that. But as you start to get tens of millions of dollars, that that's a little bit different. And those strategies will be much more beneficial for you as you get into, into those, those tax deferral strategies, if you will. Mm. Got it. I appreciate that. Um, I want to rotate to something um, that we think is pretty specific to us here in the state of Maine. Um, so obviously, Ben, Austin, and I all are currently sitting in the state of Maine. Maine has a lot of smaller, close-knit communities, um, naturally being uh, as rural as we are. Um, sometimes these communities can be a bit skeptical of the, and I'm going to put in quotes here, the out-of-staters or the out-of-towners or the out-of-state money, whatever you want to call it. So I want to ask you, Tom, kind of what what does your kind of boots on the ground process look like when you're trying to evaluate investment opportunities in these types of locations? So we invest in, in funds, remember, that have teams and teams sure. of people that are certainly local and talking to the local brokers. Uh, and so very, very thorough investment process. And what I would say there is oftentimes, generally speaking for commercial real estate, you're staying in your major metros. So yeah. a lot of what sure. we do is in your major metropolitan areas. Yeah. Uh, but in, in your case, I, I totally understand. Uh, and it's, it's interesting if you look at some of the out of towner cities, right? So this pandemic, a lot of people moved into, into places like Boise, Idaho, and you've seen an exodus come back out. Perhaps yeah. that's culture. Yeah. Perhaps that's, they, they have to go back to the office. Uh, that, that I'm not sure of, but I do think, you know, look that at the end of the day, having more interest in the real estate that, that you all own or in your communities is a good thing. So out of towners coming in, having more demand for that real estate is only going to be net beneficial over time. And I, and I know it, nobody likes the, the out-of-staters to move in and, and all of that. But generally yeah. speaking, I, I, I view it in much more of a silver lining perspective and say that's actually a very good thing because that means that the area that you own in is, is in high demand Absolutely. and that is going to push values up. So uh, I would say that that's definitely a, a different way to think about it. I know not everybody listening to this podcast would agree, <laughs> but uh, I would say try to try to see the silver lining in some of that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Tom, I know um, one thing because you've talked about this a little bit already is is uh, shopping malls, the retail side, right? Is is that that's been the area that you know the the internetification, if that's a word, of uh, retail, right? Where it kind of we're all pushed to go, you know, click on an Amazon link, and you know, three to five business days or next day or same day, you get that package. Uh, it, so why do I have to go to the store and make it a big thing? So shopping malls have long been a decline. This is not a, a 2023-24 theme. This is. This is well there, but I think we're, what's interesting, you, you, like we read right now, like Carl Icahn, right, is he's making these big bets. Uh, shopping malls are going away. You know, they're going to go all bankrupt, and he's going to make all the. And this is was his biggest bet, and he doubled down on it. 
in and I'm maybe not so fast, uh, my friend, is what Lee Corso would say, right? Is that something where, you know, <laughs> totally. that's not totally going away. So a question to you is, obviously, he viewed it that way, and he viewed it was going to go completely under. What trends are you seeing with uh, real estate inventory with, with current malls or closing malls? What, what do you see? Yeah, so Class A malls, experience-based. So think high-end retail, good locations, farm-to-table restaurants, that retail is doing just fine. So class A malls, and if you look at the publicly traded REIT space, uh, Simon Property Group is one of the biggest mall owners in the country. Their properties are doing just fine. And if you read their earnings reports, they'll tell you occupancy in in many of their locations is 90, 95%, which is very strong. And Mm. so I would say not all retail is dead. Class A experience-based retail is going to do fine. Class B and class C is a little bit interesting. And I can tell you just anecdotally and, and what we've seen, that does lend itself to, to other areas and other industries moving in. And so one local mall here in the Philadelphia area, the it's, an, it's what we would call a class B, maybe even class C mall. The entire bottom floor has been turned into medical office yeah. and imaging, right? So MRI imaging, where you need a lot of space, you need very, you know, a, a good air conditioning or HVAC unit to keep the, the equipment cool. And then so the hospitals don't have to keep all of the imaging equipment there. It's in the bottom floor. People go there for their outpatient services. That's been a tremendous tailwind for some of these larger spaces that you yeah. need to that you need to rent. So things like that. But the one thing that I would I would remind people, you know, a lot of the trends in real estate take a long time to develop. And and real estate owners don't just sit there and say, you know, well, we had them all. It's not good anymore. We're just going to, you know, go by the wayside. It, it, it is what it is. That just doesn't happen, right? They're going to find ways to reinvent that space. And so that's just one example. So medical office in, in, uh, in, in the lower floor of the mall, uh, multifamily in, in some capacity, some of the malls have been removed and, and highest and best use of that land will, will ultimately things will be redeveloped there. Mm. And so I, I think what's super interesting about the pandemic, we were all locked in our homes, right? And it certainly put fuel on the fire for Amazon and home delivery of, of all goods. And that's certainly helping and a tailwind for industrial properties. But what the pandemic also taught us was you can't lock us in our homes, yep. right? So you want to get out there. You want to mm-hmm. spend money. Sure. Uh, for, for goodness sake, right now, you have a Fed trying to slow the consumer down. And what are we saying? Nope, we still <laughs> want to go out and, and spend more money. So when you think about it, as long as it's experience-based and people are going to, to something that they, they want to go to, whether it be open air or, or the nice restaurant or, or whatever they want to go experience, that type of retail is going to do just fine. I think we've proven that. There's a balance. So over the last decade, as we've read, oh, all brick and mortar is going to go away. That's just simply not the case. Yeah. Oh, thank you. That that makes a lot of sense. And actually, so kind of going along with the trend of experience-based Maine, like we talked about with the, my question about vacation rentals and things like that, it's very scenic, whether you like lakes or mountains or oceans. So residents of Maine, but then also people in other states look at Maine as a place for maybe a second home or a vacation home. And uh, I live in Kennebunk, so by the coast, there's a lot of really huge luxury properties. What has the market been like for like second homes or luxury properties? And does that kind of move in tandem with 
normal residential real estate or is that its own thing? It's really its own thing. And, and what's, mm-hmm. what's uh, again, interesting about that is generally speaking, when interest rates have gone up in the past, that's kind of hit the higher end of the market. People said, all right, let's, let's take a pause. So usually your higher end gets hit first mm-hmm. because there's plenty of demand that still will outshine there in the, call it the, the lower range, the middle income range. We haven't seen that in this, uh, yeah. in this downturn, if you will. You have so many cash buyers out there right now. Uh, there's, the, I mean, the, the economy is flush with cash. And so it really, second homes are still going strong. Uh, high-end luxury homes are still going strong. You, you're starting to see that wane a little bit, not so much in the second home market, but in, in the luxury primary residence market, that, that demand is starting to wane a little bit right now. Uh, but generally speaking, because you have so much cash in the economy, those second homes and those luxury homes are, are still holding up. You know, that's not to say that will continue, but to date, they've held up pretty well. So you kind of raised the point there that I, I think is a, a good question there because you kind of saying that, Hey, when interest rates go up and obviously that can hurt maybe some of the higher end of the market, right? Is all of a sudden that because obviously interest payments on larger values yeah. can yep. make it much more unaffordable, especially when it's a, a superfluous purchase, right? Is this like, I don't need it, but now I really can't afford it because of the high level of interest rate. So I want to ask a, maybe zoom out on the interest rate question here yeah. about just generally, because I could see where from a myth busting perspective, I could just throw out, geez, well, rule of thumb, interest rates are higher, bad time to be in real estate because you pay more interest. Can you talk about how you as a fund manager look at that of like, obviously, interest rates are higher. Well, that does not mean that the whole asset class is now in, like not touchable and not investable and not a great place to be. So can you talk about that dynamic? Because I could see sure. where that would be the thinking that would be out there. Sure. So certainly within commercial real estate, that the equation is, remember I said, NOI over purchase price. So if you're growing NOI, that's just, that's taking the cap rate up as well. Right. And so Mm -hmm. that's what everybody always misses. They say, oh, higher interest rates. But in inflationary times and generally throughout most years, you're going to see income growth within commercial real estate. And so multifamily rents are up, industrial rents are up, and and they were record setting in the last couple of years. Now things are certainly moderating and coming back down to normal levels. But within a commercial real estate space, that's the piece you have to understand. Higher interest rates don't necessarily mean doom and gloom. In this environment, what I would say about interest rates, and the consumer did it as well, and most commercial real estate operators did it as well. They locked in longer dated debt at low interest rates. And and quite candidly, it's why the Fed's interest rate hiking cycle hasn't worked. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. it's because you... Most people, I mean, if, if I talk to 10 of your clients, nine of them have probably locked in fixed rate mortgages at 3% or below. Absolutely. Right? Yep. And so why would you sell? So there's your, you have a supply problem. That's helping the sure. supply problem. And you, you don't, you've lost a lot of buyers coming into the space as well because the, the interest rates are higher. So you don't want to, and you don't want to refinance. You don't want to go buy a new home yourself and lock in at 7%, which is a bit of a psychological thing as well, right? Like mm. even if your home appreciated in value by $300,000, you don't want to take that gain and go buy something else because you can't stomach having a 7% mortgage when you just had a 2.5% mortgage. So, you know, a lot of interesting dynamics in this cycle. And so commercial real estate, basically every corporation that takes debt uh, across the country has locked in low fixed rate debt for the most part. Even think about some of your big conglomerate corporations, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, they all issue a lot of debt, right? But it's at low rates right now. What I think will be challenging moving forward, and so right now everything's worked as it's supposed to, income has grown, uh, interest rate payments have not really... 
taken too much of it. There, there hasn't been too much of an issue in the markets. That said, as corporations have to refinance that debt, so that looks more like 2026, 2027. If that has to happen and these interest rates stay higher, then I think you're going to have a bigger problem. And that would hold in all real estate. That would hold in sure. commercial real estate as well. But right now, I think it's been prudent management with leverage and locked in at low rates for, you know, for the next few years, things should be okay. Again, if the Fed continues to take rates higher or, you know, if, if, uh, if the long end of the curve, more importantly, the 10 year continues to, to, to go higher, you could see some problems, but that's not a commercial real estate problem. That's a, that's an economic problem across all industries. But Tom, I, I, I guess I want to make another point to that too is obviously from a financing perspective, like just because so obviously when, when rates go down, we refinance into lower rates, right? Right. We, we tip, obviously from the buyer perspective, where we go from one property to another, I'm talking residential, you might be newly financing into higher rates, but you always have the ability to refinance back down into lower rates just because you bought it, say an 8% mortgage doesn't mean that you're locked in for 30 years at an 8% mortgage. Now, to what you just said is if it just kept going up and up and up, well, yeah, you would be. But it, cyclically, there might be opportunities there over a 30-year time or a 20-year, whatever the mortgage rate is, to then refinance down, which I think some people forget or that's why they get scared to yeah. enter into debt at a certain level too, right? Certainly. And that's definitely on the residential side. Yep. Commercial real estate lending works a little bit different. You can't just prepay on a commercial real estate loan in most cases. So a little bit different of a thought process on that side. But you're absolutely right. On the residential side, you do have to remember rates. I mean, even the Fed right now is saying, yeah, we're keeping rates here because they're restrictive. We may have to take them higher to be restrictive. Eventually, they won't need to be restrictive anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. And hopefully it doesn't come with a deep recession, but rates should start to come back down. And at that point, you're right, you can refinance. But it's, it's, you know, even though you've seen big gains in real estate, even though that point certainly exists, we haven't seen the movement that you've seen in past cycles. You, you just haven't seen mm. people sell out of their homes and, and buy new homes. And I, it's, I think it's just psychologically different this time in terms of, but if, if people believe that rates are going to stay at seven and a half or eight percent for a 30, 30 year fixed rate mortgage, maybe you start to see some of that pick up now, but you know, yet to be determined. That's great. No, I, I appreciate the insight there. And I know uh, a couple of times we took you a little bit into these rabbit holes, but I think it's really helpful. And so we've kind of reached the end here of our conversation. So I first want to say thank you again so much for coming on the show. The The knowledge and expertise you provided was phenomenal. Um, I do have one last question for you that I, uh, I try to ask all of our guests. Um, so sure. the name of our show, again, is Retirement Success in Maine. Um, so I want to ask you, how are you going to find your personal retirement success, Tom? You, you gave me a softball. <laughs> Real estate, naturally, right? There, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> so, there it is. I, I, I kind of, uh, I kind of alluded to that in the beginning as well. Look, real estate is is in my veins. I have rental properties myself. I, I now, like I said, have the benefit of of investing more institutional capital. So I, I can't. There, there's no other asset class that has shown the consistency as commercial real estate. So if you go back to, to 1978 uh, and you look, there's only been three drawdowns and we're in one of them right now, yeah. right? And so generally speaking, real estate's going to appreciate. So from my perspective, that's a key part to my retirement success. Obviously, I'm diversified. I do invest in, in equities and fixed income as well, but uh, will certainly be key to to my retirement. I love that. Tom, 
Perfect answer. Thank you so much for coming on our show. I know we, we really appreciate all you provided here today and, and uh, looking forward to maybe at some point to uh, hear a little update as well. So thanks so much. You got it. And I'll, I'll be up in Maine soon because, uh, you know, I do love the state. I, I might have missed it now. Uh, <laughs> have, have the leaves all fallen at this point or is it still the, okay. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's kind of there, but that's okay. We'll, uh, we'll have to schedule you when it's, uh, it's maybe a better season. So. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. You're well. So I was pretty excited we were able to um, uh, connect with Tom Miller today. I yeah. thought he was, you know, amazing. Uh, again, Union Square Capital Partners there uh, kind of has this not only just real estate, but also like a fund in terms of private uh, real estate as well. It's its own thing. So able yeah. to kind of get into a lot of, I think, the opportunities and yeah. some of the risks that you see in different types of real estate, especially, I think, where it's just so so hot right now in terms of prevalent of thinking that um, people are kind of looking for opportunities and they, they think they're missing out. So we wanted to have an expert that come yeah. on and really kind of give us the good and the bad and the ugly in terms of uh, real estate. So I thought Tom captured that really, really well today. Agreed. So um, I know, uh, obviously, we're, we're episode 93. So we're getting up there. We're getting up there. We're approaching the the century mark. Um, you know, almost a golden podcast, I think, <laughs> is what you call it. So we're getting close to that. So uh, to find a little bit more out, we're going to have some links to Union Square. Uh, we're going to have a little bit more about our show. Um, mm-hmm. If you go to blog.guidancepointllc.com backslash 93 for episode 93. So you can find all that there. Uh, we really appreciate you tuning in. Again, I know real estate is is something that people are really passionate about. Yeah. And, and we wanted to make sure we were kind of uh, true and honoring that passion here today and, and exploring it and, and all of its glory. So thank you for tuning in. We really appreciate it. We hope to catch you next time. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just listened to an information-filled episode of the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. While this show is about finding more ways to improve your retirement happiness, Guidance Point Advisor's mission is to help our clients create a fulfilling retirement. We do financial planning so that people can enjoy retirement and align their monetary resources to their goals. If you're wondering about your own personal success, we invite you to reach out to us to schedule a 45-minute listening session. Our advisors will have a conversation with you about your goals, your frustrations, and your problems. Make sure you check out Guidance Point Advisors on our blog, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And you can always check out more episodes of this podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And of course, keep on finding your retirement success.